How hard it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. It always strikes me when people actually say, thanks be to God, after they hear a word like that. So please, pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. There was an old pastor who throughout his career, throughout his vocation, he earned a reputation for being the kind of pastor who could turn church finances around. No matter where he went, whether they were deeply in debt or very poor, by the time he left to go to another church, the church had somehow turned around. Perhaps it was his fiery sermons about the the sin of money and the love of it, or perhaps it was just his humble life. He turned churches around. He got such a reputation that he would often be invited to guest preach at other churches when they were having financial problems. And throughout his career, he heard all the same excuses. Oh, we just don't have enough money to make ends meet. We've lost some of our best givers. We have too much debt. And he would come in for a Sunday, he would preach a sermon, and the offering plates would go from being a little too white to being just right. And so it came to pass that near the end of his career, he got a phone call from a church on the other side of the state. There was a wealthy church member, a wealthy lay person from the church who called and said, Hey, you're the pastor who helps with finances, right? He said, I guess so. He said, well, I need you to come preach for my church. We are in so much debt that we can't do anything. We can't start new ministries. We can't help people in our community. We are in so much debt, we can't do anything. Please come and preach a sermon for us. And so they talked a little bit more about the specifics, the history of the church, that sort of thing. At the end of the phone conversation, the wealthy church member said to the old pastor, By the way, why don't you come on a Saturday night? I'll put you up for the night. You can stay at either my mountain house, my townhouse, or my lake house. He said, I don't want you to have to drive out on Sunday morning. You can come out on a Saturday night. You can stay in my mountain house, my townhouse, or my lake house. The old pastor said, well, I guess I'm not coming then. And the wealthy man said, what are you talking about? We need you. Who else is going to save us? We have so much debt, we can't do anything. And the man said, you know what you need to do? You need to sell one of your houses and then pay off the church debt. And he hung up the phone. You know what you need to do? You need to sell one of your houses. Pay off the debt at your church. And then he hung up on them. Woe to those of us who are rich. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Last week we spent the entire worship service talking about something we would much rather avoid. We talked about the subject of divorce. And as I stood from this place and I preached those words, I witnessed some pew squirming. Some discomfort with the words that were coming from the front of the sanctuary. Whether we're divorced, we know someone who's divorced. It was a place defined by anxiety last week as we wrestled with Jesus' rigidity about divorce. But now we get to talk about money. And if you thought people were uncomfortable last week, friends, you should have seen how all of you squirmed when Emmett read the scripture today. Money. 
the dun 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 money. It is everything, is it not? Presumably, we all interact with it on a regular basis. Presumably, most of us here wish we had more of it. And perhaps some of us do need more money. Maybe we don't have enough to pay our bills, or we don't have enough to buy groceries or fill up our gas tank. Maybe some of us have just enough. We're able to make ends meet. We can save a little for the future, and we can splurge every once in a while. And still yet some of us might have more than enough. We might never have to think about our bills because we know we have enough in the account. We can't remember the last time we bought anything used, and we are always the ones who reach for the check after dinner at a restaurant. Money, whether we are rich or poor, is easily, without a doubt, the thing that consumes our thoughts and desires more than anything else. Two billion credit cards. $130,000 of debt. And so Jesus, Jesus was about to set out on a journey when a man walked up. We don't know a lot about this man. Some of the other Gospels give us other clues, but in Mark's Gospel, all we learn is that he apparently did all the commandments and he had too much stuff. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, you know the commandments? Why don't you try them? Oh, teacher, I've been doing them since I was a young boy. And Jesus, looking at him with love, said, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you own. Give the money to the poor. And then you can follow me. When the man heard this, he was shocked and he went away grieving, for he had many possessions. He walked away with his shoulders slumped over because he had too much stuff. And he wanted to know. He wanted to know what he could do to inherit the kingdom. And he had apparently done a lot already, even from the time he was a young boy. And Jesus had the gall to look at him in the face and say, friend, that ain't enough. You know, when Jesus invites people in the Gospels to follow him, they almost always, without exception, drop everything right then and there and follow him. Except for this guy. For some reason, his wealth was such that it was not something he could walk away from. Whether it was the materialism of it or the power it created or the comfort he appreciated, he, unlike almost everyone else in the Gospel, he doesn't walk toward the kingdom, he walks away from it. Unless we skip over this absurdly important detail, Jesus' response to the man was apparently born out of love. What kind of love is that exactly? What kind of love that looks at someone and says, hey, you know what? The only way you can do this kingdom thing is to do exactly the thing I know you're never going to do. That's painful. That's painful for me. This Messiah looking into the heart of a man and naming right then and there the sin that had wrapped itself around his heart. And to make things worse, Jesus doesn't even really wait for him to leave before he makes him into a teachable moment. He says to the crowds who had gathered around how hard it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And scripture says the disciples were perplexed, just like us. And so some sermons would now start to shift. There's a logic to saying, each of us can look into our own hearts. We can peer into our own souls. Someone like me can say to people like you, imagine. Imagine what in your life is holding you back from the kingdom. Maybe it's an attachment, a desire, a hope. Something that's more like a shackle keeping you back instead of a spring that bounces you forward. 
And I've heard plenty of sermons like that. In fact, I know I've preached some sermons like that. A sermon where the final line is something just like, friends, we need to let it all go. But what if the point isn't about what we have to give up? What if the point is that we can't do it? Because Jesus is clear with the disciples about the impossibility of the rich man's salvation. He says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to go to heaven. But in the same passage, he also says that the Almighty God can do anything. That he, God Almighty, can make the impossible possible. So which is it? Do rich people get to go to heaven? Or do they not? In theological terms, we like to call this divine tension. It's an impossible possibility. One cannot inherit eternal life in the sense that so long as you do this, and you do this, that it's all yours. Because time and time again in the gospel, what we call the good news, grace is offered freely to us in spite of us. But we, for some reason, we whittle it down to a proposition. If you come to church every week, heaven is yours. If you sell all of your possessions and give to the poor, heaven is yours. If you pray every day, heaven is yours. And when that kind of propositional behavior, when that becomes the defining message of the church, the church we say has the good news, then guess what? It's no longer good news. Instead, it's just another version of the law whereby everything is impossible. If you do this, if you do this, if you do this. But there is no such thing as if in the kingdom of heaven. There is no such thing as if. Of course, there are things in life, sins, desires, temptations, that prevent us from being all that God would have us to be. But when those things, when focusing on those things alone become the linchpin to everything we know about being a disciple, then our lives are nothing more than chaos. Friends, if the statistic about 2 billion credit cards and $130,000 of debt are enough, it's clear we need to talk about money. We need to talk about our unhealthy obsessiveness with it. But sometimes I think it's more important for us to talk about the fallacy that we think we can earn the kingdom. Because that's what the young man says. What must I do to inherit the kingdom? In this moment with the rich man, it reveals to us the kind of righteousness we think we require to acquire the kingdom of heaven. We make it out in our minds because we listen to pastors like me that it's even more than following the laws. It's more than checking off all the boxes. We take it to another step and we say, it's about who you are when no one's around. It's who you are when no one's looking. It's your internet browser history. It's who you really are that earns your salvation. And then we say foolish things like Jesus is waiting in the wings to ask you to drop the very thing we know that we cannot. Why? Why would Jesus ask this man to sell everything to follow him? Why would he ask him to do something he knows that he will never do? Perhaps Jesus wants to suck out all of our self-righteousness. Jesus asks the rich man a question and vicariously asks all of us a question. It's a reminder that we are no better than the people maligned in the media and the people dropped because of bad drama. Maybe, maybe Jesus asks the question because he really wants us to know that we're sinners. 
that it's not just a noun we throw around, that it's really, truly, and deeply who we are. But what's the good news in finding out that we're sinners? There's tension in this story. There's the pull from what we are asked to do and what we know we cannot do. And that tension is at the very heart of Jesus' message to the rich man and to people like you and me. We all have a job to do, and that job doesn't earn us anything. That is the uncomfortable comfort. It's the impossible possibility of our salvation. We worship a God, a God who in spite of our best and even our worst intentions, desires our salvation even when we cling to things we know that we should not. God. Our God, in the midst of our chaotic and frightening dispositions, waits for us to realize that it is because we are sinners, it is because we cannot save ourselves, that we are saved. We read the story of the rich man. We often make it into a call to be better stewards. Give more money to charity. Give more money to church. Sell all of your possessions. But if that's what it takes, then none of us are going to go to heaven. Because when faced with our own version of the question, some of us it might be money, some of us it might be possessions. When we're faced with our version of the question, we would all turn away from the kingdom and walk away in grief. But that's the whole point. Inheriting the kingdom is not up to us. If all the Christians we know make us feel guilty for not doing enough, if every sermon from a pastor like me leaves you feeling guilty, then we cannot call it amazing grace. When the gospel becomes a commodity to be propositioned, Jesus did something for you, now you have to do something for Jesus. Then this cross is foolishness. We all, all of us, rich and poor alike, we all will fail to live according to what Jesus has asked. If any of us here were there that day, Jesus would have given us an impossible task. And that's why the passage ends with this horrible and terrifying list of things to be abandoned for the sake of the gospel. Friends and family and children and property. It's because Jesus knows we can't do it. So sure, selling our possessions to help the poor, it's a great thing but it doesn't earn us a ticket to heaven. You know, confronting a family member for their bigotry and their hatred, it's the right thing to do, but it doesn't earn us a spot in the resurrection. Yeah, abandoning our possessions, our sinful desires, those things that prevent us from being who God wants us to be, it's all a great thing we could do, but it doesn't procure us anything. We're salvation up to us, it would be impossible. Thanks be to God, then, that nothing is impossible for God. So I offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen. I know that in the sermon, I think I said the word tension five times. I recognize the tension in what I'm about to do because I'm going to ask you to give the church some money after telling you that it doesn't earn you anything. But it's true. It's true. I've heard people say uh, that they believe if they give more money to the church in this earthly life, it earns them a better spot in heaven. 
as if in heaven there's condominiums, there's houses, and there's mansions. And that depending on how much money you give on earth, you get the big house. <laughs> Friends, that ain't the gospel. The strange, mysterious truth of the gospel is it really doesn't matter how much money you put in the offering plate. It won't earn you anything. It won't earn you anything. We don't give to the church. We don't give to God because we think we get anything out of it. We give simply because God has given to us. Because we can take a look at our lives and most of us here are remarkably wealthy. We might not feel wealthy. We might have $130,000 in debt. We might have 20 credit cards. But compared to people in other parts of the world, all of us in this room are incredibly wealthy. We don't give because we think it buys us a spot in heaven. We give simply because it was first given to us. Because we can take a humble look at our lives and say, I have been blessed, and oh, what a joy it would be to bless other people. Not to buy a $10,000 cross, but to feed people in our community. To be present for people who are weak, or who are alone, or who are sick. To help others discover that they are loved even when they don't feel them anywhere else. So now, with all of the impossible tension I can muster, ushers, please come into the room to receive our gifts.